Hi, friends. It's Vin Scully. It's time for Dr. Clapper. In sports, there's winning and losing and getting injured. That's why there's Dr. Clapper. Dr. Clapper is the former head of orthopedic surgery at Cedar sinai The Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper, presented by Cedar sinai Hey, Dr. Clapper. How are you? Saturday mornings from 7 to 9. Silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. <laughs> yes, Doc, I love your show. Now, here he is, Dr. Robert Clapper. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. It's the shape of things. That's what I want to talk about and the topic this Saturday. Because my guest at 8.15, she's a third-generation pizza maker. And in 1945, her family decided that they're going to make pizza in L.A. Nobody did it before them. But they're not going to make it New York-style round. They're going to make it rectangular. Because the pan they had fit better in the rectangular oven. Can you imagine? They didn't try to be New York. They did it their own way. And it led to tremendous success. 2021, they're still around making pizza. And it's delicious. And we'll get into it at 8.15. But it made me think all week, where do we see the dreamer, the Southern California dream, changing the shape, maybe from New York, another transplant from New York where the shape was changed, was the Dodgers. Walter O'Malley, who owned the team, believe it or not, left Brooklyn because he needed a different shape to his stadium. It was called Ebbets Field, and it was stuck. It was trapped because of the geometry of the shape of that stadium and no parking. It was the shape of the stadium that led Walter O'Malley to want to leave Brooklyn because New York would not help him. They would not build the dome stadium that he wanted, but L.A. did. Let's get into the story. Number one. While Brooklyn fans glowed with pride, O'Malley was considering the future. He wanted a new home for his team, but it wasn't clear exactly where home would be. While Gotham fiddled, L.A. let it be known that it lusted after a major league franchise. Suspense built over the next two seasons. You feel now that there's a good chance that your club is going to stay here in New York. Gabe, honestly, I haven't the vaguest idea at this moment. We know that we have a fine proposition from Los Angeles, a sincere one. He didn't want to leave. He's a New Yorker. But they would not work with him. Number two. There's a great picture of O'Malley coming out to Los Angeles and seeing Chavez Ravine. And like Brigham Young, he goes, that's the place. He sees a ballpark. We found a site, we spent a great deal of money, and we built a magnificent ballpark, and the people love it. The move west was validated before the completion of Dodger Stadium in 1962. Four years earlier, in their inaugural season at the L.A. Coliseum, the Dodgers drew a million by July, passing Brooklyn's home attendance for the previous season. By July. They start in April. Can you imagine? He already knew, changing the shape. His stadium was called Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. It could not handle more than 30,000 people and 700 parking spots. Can you imagine? Holy Frank McCourt. He knew he needed to have a round dome structure. Incredible. Change the shape, Walter O'Malley. Move to Los Angeles. Next. 
Fewer suburbanites were willing to travel back into the deteriorating areas around Ebbets Field. Even in that championship season of 1955, average attendance was less than half of the park's capacity. There was urban blight. There was no parking at Ebbets Field. It was a very difficult chore to get there by car and park your car and come back and find that the tires had not been slashed or the, uh, or the paint had not been scratched. Speaking of Henry Aaron, who passed away, may he rest in peace. One of my dad's favorite baseball players, even though my mother continued to believe that Henry Aaron was Jewish because Aaron was a Jewish sounding name. Yeah, that's a whole nother show. Listen to Peter O'Malley, Walter O'Malley's son, talk about Hank Aaron, the Boston Braves, going to become the Milwaukee Braves, leaving the fans of Boston to get a new shape to their stadium and the success that they got, this is what inspired Walter O'Malley. His son, Peter O'Malley, will be speaking, number four. The Braves started it. Their relocation from Boston to Milwaukee in 1953 was the first shift of franchises in half a century. Milwaukee rolls out the red carpet for its new baseball team, the Braves. Owner Lou Perini says Boston was never like this. I think everyone in baseball saw the uh, wide acceptance by the Braves in Wisconsin. That got the attention of everyone in baseball. But who was it that actually initiated it from Los Angeles? This woman is a Lo Los Angeles hero. She was a 22-year-old councilwoman. Behind every great thing, there is a woman. And her name is Roz Wyman, number six. Los Angeles officials made O'Malley an offer he couldn't refuse. Compliments of the youngest member of the city council. I ran for office in 1953, and I thought it would be a very good issue. So I checked off of my little 3x5 card, bring Major League Baseball to Los Angeles. Preferring to make a deal in New York, O'Malley balked at Rosalind Wyman's initial inquiry in 1955. But at the 1956 World Series in Brooklyn, an L.A. County supervisor, Kenneth Hahn, came calling. He didn't come calling. He started to talk to the Washington senators to beg them to come to Los Angeles. But guess who saw Ken Hahn, the L.A. councilman, talking to the senators at the baseball game? Walter O'Malley. Listen to this story of what he did next. Seven. He is so desperate for a team that he'll take the Washington Senators. O'Malley sees him talking to the owner of the Senators, looking down from his box at Ebbets Field. He writes out on a napkin, don't do anything until you talk to me. Hands it to an usher, hands it to Han. The Dodgers stopped in Los Angeles after the World Series in 1956 on their way to Japan. And Kenny Han takes O'Malley up in a helicopter and he shows O'Malley this land at Chavez Ravine. Number eight. And Walter understood by looking at that that you could use that contour of that land for a possible stadium. Then he showed some interest. With the city council set to offer O'Malley's 300 acres of prime real estate, Mayor Norris Paulson asked Wyman to get a commitment from the Dodgers owner. I said, Mr. O'Malley, we'd really like to know whether you will come if this vote is taken. 
And he said to me, I'm a New Yorker, and I would rather stay in New York if I can. Yeah, she, of course, does not relay that to the city council, and they do their vote and promise Walter O'Malley the world. Next. The L.A. City Council votes to offer him everything he could have ever imagined. New York offers nothing, and he leaves. Well, if somebody offered you 300 eggs in L.A., what would you do? If I were Walter O'Malley, I'd do it tomorrow. Absolutely. L.A. totally outmaneuvered New York. They made O'Malley an offer that only a fool would have refused. Listen to his son talk about the vision of Walter O'Malley wanting not only a round stadium instead of the trapezoid of Ebbets Field that was landlocked, the growth that he would have, but he even uses the term dome. Well, guess what sits on that property in Brooklyn that he really wanted? The Barclays Center. He was a visionary about shapes. Next. O'Malley needed to curry favor with Moses if he was to replace the antiquated Ebbets Field. In 1953, he envisioned a privately financed dome stadium at the corner of Atlantic and Flatbush Avenues. All the subways came there together with the Long Island Railroad so the people could come in from Nassau County, Suffolk County, as well as you could get there on any subway in the city of New York. It's perfect. Two major avenues run by it. So he sits down and very carefully writes a letter to Robert Moses. He goes, you condemn the land, I'll buy it at a reduced rate, and I'll build a ballpark. And he'll build it himself. Nope, they still said no. Number 11. The biggest disappointment of his life was when his dream to build the Dome Stadium downtown did not happen. Only when that was proven to be politically impossible did he then look elsewhere. To underscore his threat to move the Dodgers, O'Malley scheduled seven home games in Jersey City for the 1956 and 57 seasons. Moses responded by offering to build O'Malley a municipal stadium, not in Brooklyn, but in Queens. So where in the world of art, and the rest is history, that is why the Dodgers are here in Los Angeles, because of the vision of Walter O'Malley to change the shape of the stadium. That's the reason, the only reason. Changing the shape. What about in art? Where do you take a round pizza, a round structure, a VW Beetle, for example, and make it rectangular, Baroni's Pizza, a round New York pizza, make it rectangular. Where do you do that in art? Bruce Myers invents the dune buggy a round VW Beetle with the right fiberglass from his boat building experience, take the top off of the VW Beetle and put this gorgeous rectangular structure around it, create the whole world of off-road racing, create the dune buggy, better known as the Myers Manx and change the world forever. He's 95 years old, he's still alive, Bruce Myers, because he can envision the success that changing a shape will do. Let's hear the story of the dune buggy, number nine. Bruce Myers dreamed up and produced these iconic dune buggies. His creation helped give birth to the sport of off-road racing and the Baja 1000. Myers vehicles embodied the spirit of California in the 1960s. They were simple, 
inexpensive, colorful, and fun to drive. They caught on immediately. Magazines like Hot Rod featured the Manx on the cover, and Myers saw sales of his fiberglass-bodied cars soar. How did he do this? Number 10. The cars were a thrill to drive and handled like sports cars. They even won races like the Pikes Peak Hill Climbs, beating much heavier Corvettes and Cobras to the top. The Minx's ride to the top is a remarkable story that started with Bruce Meyer's love for adventure. It was nurtured on the beaches of Southern California, flourished on the back roads and dirt trails of Baja, California, and would lead him to hero status among off-road adventurers around the world. What previously existed was what was known as a beach buggy, basically a hot rod on the beach, but it was heavy, it was clunky, it was not the engine in the back, it was not lightweight. He modified the entire concept of riding on dunes, dunes and created the dune buggy, number 11. The buggies were fun, but were heavy and crude and would sometimes get stuck in the sand. Bruce began work on an idea that would take the beach buggies to a new level, the Manx. He sketched out a sleek little roadster body that he knew he could make using the same fiberglass techniques he'd learned building boats. I could only see it in fiberglass, and I could only see it looking a certain way, and I hated the looks of all the others. I just despised what they were doing because they didn't have that sensibility, I guess. Can't blame them, just that I didn't like them. I liked their function, but I didn't like their looks. Number 12. The boat building taught me the technical, the fiberglass technical. It's, it certainly had a, a lot of knowledge about making plugs, surfaces, and perfect surfaces, beautiful surfaces, and then making molds of them and producing parts. Number 13. He decided to go with a VW engine and shortened chassis. He worked tirelessly on his new buggy. I spent a year and a half building this thing in my spare time. At first it was my spare time, then it became full on. But all that hours, thousands of hours, go into this thing that you don't know if it's gonna function and work. And yet people walk in and look at it and say, what a neat looking toy. The generations of joy. It's been a lot of years. Just like Baroni's has served, served generations of patrons who still come back, grandchildren coming back. They're adults now. That's the same thing for Bruce Myers in the dune buggy. This is a beautiful story. Listen to this, number two. Since I designed the Myers Max 50 years ago or more, I've probably had that many men walk up to me to shake my hand. Dozens and dozens of, of men, fathers. They said, please, I want to shake your hand. What did I do? You provided something that saved my son from drugs. What? Number three. Yeah, I could smell the grass being smoked in his bedroom, but he walks out and says, Dad, look at the bitch and dune buggy in the magazine. Dad saw what he had to do. He went and bought a kit, went down and bought all the bits for the Volkswagen, and they started bonding. The bonding never stopped. The family got into it. The kids, everybody. Dad's long gone. The man, the kid is now 55 or 60 years old, and he's standing there saying, that's the buggy. I'll never sell it. What a love affair. What a cohesion of family values. 
what a what a glue to bring people together and then he invents the baja 1000 he created it but just like you're not accepted by your peers because you're too much of a visionary not everybody wants to eat a rectangular pizza because they only see it as circular you got to fight the naysayers walter o'malley had to deal with those mishuganas in new york who wouldn't build him a stadium in brooklyn there's always the naysayers listen to the naysayers for bruce myers and how he persisted and won them over after 40 years number five i want to say that ed perlman at the beginning of the very first race came to you says bruce he says you you're closer to volkswagen than anybody because of what you do you make dune buggies out of volkswagens he says uh, why don't you go and see if you can hit them up for some contingency money for race money pot money so we wrote a cunning letter myself my wife and my sales manager and it very pleasingly showed that the race is about to happen of the 68 cars i think there's 50 of them that are volkswagen based next so volkswagen gets a lift out of this whole thing and we had written this letter with great hope pointing out that it's good for them volkswagen now the the letter went to Eaglewood Cliffs, New Jersey, and we got a response that was amazing. It said, if you in any way align us with a racing image, we will sue you. That was <laughs> 1967. Finally, number seven. Forty years later, there's a celebration in Long Beach, and Sal Fish, who now runs the whole thing, is given $100,000 from Volkswagen for racing money. A pair of both a, a gasoline and a diesel uh, Touregs, and they took his old thing, which he loved, and restored it for him and handed it all to him. It was the gift of Volkswagen, after 40 years, reversing their thinking, apparently. And finally, number eight. Well, of course, I don't blame them too much. They're back in somewhere on the East Coast where you're, you're not aware of these things out in Southern California. And it, they finally awoke to it, obviously. So there was a complete turnaround in their attitude towards this racing image. Today, why not? Baja Bug is, are the easiest things to get into a racing with. There's a little Volkswagen, air-cooled Volkswagen. You, you mess around with it, and they have a class 11. It's the largest class of all, and it's full of young boys. So what have we got? A love affair that's going on with these Volkswagens. Well, we're about to have a love affair with a rectangular pizza. Laura Montiglione from Baroni's Pizza. The family's been doing it since 1945. The first family to bring pizza to LA. Changing the shape and the success you get from it. Can't wait to talk to her. Coming up next on the Weekend Warriors Show here on 710 ESPN. Miss an interview or Doc's weekly story? Check it out on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Also, Doc's advice to callers on their aches and pains. Just type Weekend Warrior in the Facebook search bar and you'll see Doc's picture in the listings. And thanks for checking out the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. You're listening to the Weekend Warrior Show, presented by Cedar Sinai. What's going on, LA? This is Kobe Bryant. It's a junior super deluxe. You got to be kidding me. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Ding, dang, dong. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Hi. 
I wanna order pizza and Yelp says you're a good place. But I got a long order that's quite serious, so wipe that smile off your face. I can see it. I need a pepperoni pizza on a jiffy. Okay. Is that it? Hell no, that ain't it. Stay with me. I need a combo and a couple Supremes, a couple deep dishes. Because that'll bust in my jeans and 20,000 inch meat lovers with the cheese is gooey. And a female right, time of that to me. I need a margarita pizza with some buffalo mozzarella. Laura, thanks so much for getting up early to be with us. What a treat. Thank you. I uh, really uh, appreciate you having me on this morning. Thank you so much. I'm so excited because of the visionary that three generations ago that started your family. Take the listener through. We'll get into how beautiful and how delicious your place is. But take us back to the beginning and take us back to the sign, Bartos, which was a restaurant before your family came there. I just want everyone to hear this beautiful story about Baroni's Pizza. Yeah, so basically uh, my family had moved from uh, Buffalo, New York to Los Angeles in 1945 for a better life. Um, Coming to California was back then was something that um, my family saw as just a different experience, um, something where they could basically um, as a whole come together multiple family members and create their dream, which was to, um, you know, make Baroni's a restaurant here in the Los Angeles <laughs> area, specifically the San Fernando Valley. So back then when everybody came from New York and migrated to California, um, the Valley was nothing but dirt and orchard trees. There was a lot of room for growth, uh, for, just people to come here and uh, excel with um, any type of business that they wanted to start. And so my grandparents saw it as a dream come true for them. So when they came here, they decided that they wanted to open up this business and uh, pursue uh, with other family members, uh, Baroni's restaurant. So they find a a former restaurant called Bartos, B-A-R-T-O apostrophe S, And then what happens? Yeah, so they thought it was very cost-effective to basically keep most of the letters on the sign and (laughs) take away the T and add the the um, the N. Sorry, the E and the N to the the restaurant. So, legend is it legend is it that it was going to cost two hundred and fifty dollars, which is a lot of money in nineteen forty-five. To get a brand new sign, and they didn't really know what the name of the place would be. But for $19, they could remove the T and add the N and the E for $19. And essentially, they looked around, and someone is Josephina Baroni or something. You're we're going to name the restaurant your last name. Yeah, so Baroni's comes from uh, my grandfather's <laughs> side, and so they decided to basically take the the T and add the N and uh, keep the, you know, have the E in there as well. So with that being said, it became Baroni. So my family decided I, to use that name because it actually came from my grandfather's side of the family. The way I discovered your family's business and the delicious pizza that you make is from a operating room nurse at Cedars who lives in the Valley who knows how much I love pizza because I'm constantly getting it from all different places and catering the operating room. And he said, you know, Dr. Clapper, you need to try this place in the Valley. And he's telling me about the pizza and it's rectangular. And he goes, and he's like apologizing already. It's nothing like what you're bringing to the operating room. 
but I'm telling you, it's mm -hmm. fantastic. And that's what inspired me to go for the first time. And lo and behold, the box is rectangular because the yep. pizza inside is rectangular. Tell us about why your grandparents and the, the founders of this pizzeria came up with the idea of making it rectangular. Yeah, so basically it was actually kind of somewhat an accident. Um, we <laughs> didn't have pizza in the L.A. area back at that time. Pizza did not exist. So my grandparents knew about it coming from New York because it was more of an East Coast thing and not mm -hmm. a West Coast thing at that time. And so they decided to take a sheet pan because that's all they had. And they made a pizza out of a sheet pan, and it was just something that they had tried. It was an experiment, and it became our signature dish. Unbelievable. I want to play a soundbite for you because as crazy as it sounds, your family's story of, of changing the shape and staying with it and defying what a typical round pizza would be has led to this success that's generational. Okay, 1945... Last time I checked is like 75 years later, 65 years later, is, is how long you guys have been around. Listen to this soundbite of the inventor of the dune buggy talking about the generational significance of having such a great idea. Forget about Dodger fans forever generation staying there because of the success of making Dodger Stadium from Ebbets Field. Steve Paulette. Let's play number two, Bruce Myers. Since I designed the Myers Max 50 years ago or more, I've probably had that many men walk up to me to shake my hand. Dozens and dozens of, of men, fathers. They said, please, I wanna shake your hand. What did I do? You provided something that saved my son from drugs. What? Number three. Yeah, I could smell the grass being smoked in his bedroom, but he walks out and says, Dad, look at the bitch and doom buggy in the magazine. Dad saw what he had to do. He went and bought a kit, went down and bought all the bits for the Volkswagen, and they started bonding. The bonding never stopped. The family got into it. The kids, everybody. Dad's long gone. The man, the kid is now 55 or 60 years old, and he's standing there saying, that's the buggy. I'll never sell it. What a love affair. What a cohesion of family values. What a what a glue to bring people together. Yesterday in the operating room, Laura, I fixed a young girl's torn anterior cruciate ligament from a skiing accident. And the reason she's in my office and the reason I'm doing it is because, believe it or not, I actually fixed the ACL of her father. So now I got done the father and I've done the daughter. There is something special in life about longevity. How does it make you feel, not only to be in, in a third generation of having this restaurant, but I'm interested, Laura, in the customers. What's it like when you see the children's, children's children come to the restaurant for you? Oh, wow. It's, it's such an honor to have so many generations of family members come to Baroni's. I hear so many stories, the same stories, actually, about how Baroni's was uh, a first date, you know, 50 years ago, and then <laughs> been married for 50 years, you know, um, so it's just amazing, and then you get to meet everybody in that family, and just so I've been coming here since I've been a baby, this was the first, 
you know, solid food I ate at Baroni's, you know, when I was a child. I mean, just some really beautiful stories about, um, you know, family and, and how Baroni's is such a big part of their life growing up, you know? Well, for my understanding, and I'm a lay person when it comes to the food business, even though I love food and, and finding the best of the best and the, the unique L.A. stories. One thing I have learned, though, Laura, is unless you own the land, if you're paying rent to someone, that's an opportunity for them to drive you out of business. Can I assume that the Baroni's family owns the land that the restaurant's on? Yes, we do. Thank goodness. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because if you don't, whether yeah. you're Philippe's, I had the owner of Philippe's, the French yeah. dip guy, Marty's Hamburgers on Pico Boulevard. If you don't own the land and you're in the food business, you're going to be out of luck. And that's the key. El Tarasco and Manhattan Beach, same thing. So that was the genius idea. When did the family buy the land? In the, in the 50s or later? Um, it was definitely a lot later, actually. Yeah. Um, we had um, leased for many years and then um, definitely later on, uh, my grandfather, my father obviously thought it was smart enough to, you know, invest in buying. Yep, they were so smart. Take me through, listen, it doesn't get any easier to the layperson when you talk about pizza, because after mm -hmm. all, it's just three ingredients. It's the dough, it's the sauce, it's the cheese. But let me tell you something, like most things in life, when it seems easy, it's quite complex. So the vendors for your cheese, the vendors, how you make the sauce, and certainly the dough and how you put it together. Take us through that. What time in the morning? Is it the day before? Take us through the dough. Take me through the sauce and take me through the cheese. Oh, man. I mean, we go through so many pizzas weekly. Um, <laughs> we constantly have to be making multiple batches of tomato sauce and our our dough and it has to sit for 24 hours and rise until we can use that dough for um the, the following day so it is a process and uh we go through maybe i would say about three or four um huge containers of tomato sauce uh probably within two weeks so about three or four of those big big uh like garbage sized containers, literally. I mean, they're wow. huge. So, um, wow. It's definitely a process with the dough. And uh, we probably make that, I would say, every other day, just because, like I said, we go through, uh, you know, multiple pizzas a week. And it, like I said, it's our signature dish. So it is, uh, it is a process, but it's our most popular item on the menu. And you guys are surviving beautifully despite COVID because of the takeout business. Yeah, so that's a blessing. I mean, because first of all, we've been around for so long. We have a name um, behind our, you know, obviously a following behind us. So that's a good thing. And then we also have, um, we were on the Guy Fieri show, Diners, Dives, and Drive-Ins, which uh, helped tremendously. Uh, that was back in 2016. So we gained a huge, another huge following from that. Um, so that was also really good for us. And then our takeout business has always been something that has been really a, a staple in the restaurant as well. So 
I can definitely say that um, a lot of restaurants are really having a hard time right now with their takeout business, but Baroni's has always been very successful and had a huge takeout business. Mm. So we continue to do that now with the, the COVID situation. Hmm. What was it like to be with Guy Fieri? Was he a pain in the neck? I remember, um, <laughs> what's his name, from the pastrami, Langers. Norm Langer yeah. told me he said no to them because they were such a pain in the neck to deal with. But uh, it's clearly worth it if you can torture yourself and get through it. Was he a gentleman or was, did he drive you crazy? No, he was great. I had a really fun time with him. He's a funny guy. Um, he f- made me feel really comfortable. We laughed a lot, had a good time. It was great. Do they, really do they shut down the restaurant for a day to shoot? Yeah, we shut down the restaurant for like a day. Um, just, again, open for takeout. But, yeah, it was mm-hmm. uh, it was a really good experience. We gained a lot of followers from let's say like Orange County all the way to down from San Diego. I mean, people coming as far as San Diego just to try our pizza. It's been, it's been really great. Did you get anybody who came from other states or other countries because of the show? I believe I got a couple people from out of state. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some, you know, crazy fanatics that follow Guy and go to all his <laughs> restaurants. So I think that's kind of where the out of state people came from. Um, so yeah, but you know, the show has aired since 2016, more than 10 times. So every single time the show comes on, I get a huge following and they come or they call and they're like, we saw you on guy's show. We want to try your pizza, you know? So it's, um, you know, from since 2016 and now I get those calls or those kinds of customers that come in all the time. There's there is a certain elegance to pizza. It's like, for being from New York, it's like a religion. But I can totally understand you saying, I don't get sick of it. The smell, the taste, and even though it's in my blood, I find it comforting every day to be in a world of pizza. Is that true? Or are you not eating pizza because after all these years, you're sick of it? Nope. I still eat pizza maybe once a week. Um, I definitely have to say that <laughs> I don't eat pizza anywhere else but Baroni's and it's not a biased thing. I mean, I can tell you that our pizza is really one of a kind and I'm not just saying that because I'm a family member, but you know, I'm sure you, you be- believe the same and you've heard other people say the same and yep. our pizza is just so different than anything you could ever, ever get here in Los Angeles or in California. What is the most popular pizza that people order? Just margarita plain or other type? I would say the two most popular are like our plain pizza and then our house combination, which is sausage, pepperoni, and bell pepper. So those together are both very popular. My mouth is watering just talking to you, Laura. Well, I look forward to meeting you in person. Maybe it'll be this week or weekend. (laughs) I'll see if I can hold on. But thanks so much for waking up early to be with us. I just think the story of your family and fighting the odds, they were special, your predecessors, in saying, nope, we're going to make it rectangular and we're going to do it our way. That, I believe, is what led to the success all these years later. You come from beautiful stock and family. And thanks so much for being with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good day. The great Baroni's Pizza, one of my favorites here in the San Fernando Valley. Weekend Warriors coming up next. We'll open the clinic. We'll do some clap revision. The number is 877-710-ESPN. 
And I got to tell you a story about surfing from last weekend where some guy and the waves were huge, dangerous. As I went to go for the wave, he decided to try to get in my way. Let me tell you what happened on this giant wave last weekend. We'll get into it here on the Weekend Warriors Show on 710 ESPN. Check out the Weekend Warrior Facebook Know Your Knee Posts. One of the most complicated areas of the body. ACL, PCL, MCL, patella supplication. Really? Dr. Clapper translates the language of your knee on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Simply type in Weekend Warrior in the search bar and click on Doc's picture. Wow! Your knee feels better already. Damn right. Like, follow, and feel better Hello there. with the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. From now on, I am not Robert Clapper. I want you to call me Smokey. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Dr. Smokey Clapper. That's the greatest. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Favorite groups to listen to. That's Levon Helm and the band. It's called The Shape I'm In. What a great song for today's topic. Talking about changing shapes, leading to success in your field. Particularly Southern California. Whether it's pizza, a dune buggy, or Dodger Stadium. Change the shape that you're in and see the fun that now happens. Well, last weekend and this whole week, winter swell, oh my God, some of the biggest waves to ever hit Hawaii occurred and some of the biggest waves to ever hit Southern California occurred. And I was in the water last Sunday. Let me try to paint this picture for you. You live in a house, you live in an apartment, go up on the roof, walk around on the roof, Get to where the gutter is, the end of the roof. Keep your feet planted on the roof and look now off the edge of the roof straight down. Or walk on a bridge, a highway overpass here in Los Angeles. Go to the edge where they're clearly over Mulholland, for example. There's a railing, safety reasons, but just stick your head over the side and look straight down. Going off the edge of a cliff. These waves were so big that on a couple of them, I was in the right spot with all of the surfers around me, but it was coming to me. It was going to be my wave, this three-story apartment building. And I paddled as hard as I could for this wave. And when I got to the moment where I could lift my hands up out of the water, it jacked up. It like it, boom, it hit the reef, jacked straight up. And I'm looking off the side of my surfboard straight down, and it was a vertical drop. If I stood up on my surfboard, I was going to free fall. So I bailed out. 
I didn't keep paddling and I let the wave go through. And oh, did that bother me. Missing out on just a bluebird, big, big wave. But then it happened. I saw the horizon light up. And as my friend Ed says, here they come, Robbie. Here comes the next set. Sometimes they'll come just one wave in the set, but usually it's two or three and sometimes four. And you have to time it because you want to figure out which is the best one to get so that you can paddle out back again when you're done. This is why it's so meditative for me because you're not allowed to think about anything else in your life but right then and right there. They talk about living the moment. That's what surfing teaches me. For some people, maybe it's golf. Maybe it's just full-on meditation with yoga. Great. But that's what you want to find is something that forces you to not think of anything else and just live in the moment. Literally hear your own breathing and concentrate on that. And all of a sudden, the set came. I waited. I let the first one pass. Let some of the other surfers that might be in my way, let them take that one. Because I could see that there was another one coming behind it and another one behind it. So I finally waited. And this big bomb was coming through. And I was in the right spot. I start paddling as hard as I can. And this one was not going to be a vertical cliff. I was catching this wave. And all of a sudden, and I'm going to go to the to my right. With my left eye, I can see this stand-up paddler. Like the northern Italians hate the southern Italians. Surfers do not like stand-up paddlers. And this guy, he's got one eye on me, seeing me trying to go for it. Instead of actually trying to go for the wave, he's angling his board to cut me off so that I can't get it and only he can rather than just riding straight down the wave like he should. Guess what I did? I didn't back off. I turned my board a little bit to the right, just like he was turning it to the right. And his thinking he's going to intimidate me. He didn't intimidate me. I got up on my board and I'm now looking down from the roof of a three-story apartment building and went flying down the wave the whole time knowing that this SOB is on my left trying to see if I'll bail out and I didn't. I rode it the whole way, probably the length of a football field. And the best part was after the session was done, my friend Lance said, I saw that whole thing, Robbie. That was incredible. Which is an extra bonus when someone witnesses what you've done. But really the joy is for yourself. You're your, it's always good to be your own audience. And it was awesome. Dr. Clapper. Today, I've already gotten the report from my buddies. It's too blown out and too choppy. Tomorrow, I'm going to be busy a whole day doing interviews for young orthopedic surgeons who want to come to Cedars. So I'm thinking Wednesday might be my next time out there riding the wild surf. I hope you enjoy the stories about surfing. 
because it's such a big part of who I am and what I do. It's almost like a religion for me. Can you imagine? I get to talk about pizza, surfing, and your orthopedic surgery problems all in a two-hour period of time. I got the greatest job in the world, and I love it every single Saturday. And thanks so much for telling your friends. It's so important to me to know that good people like you are listening and telling your friends about it. Coming up next, I'm going to tell a story, a story about next week and who my guest is going to be. She's calling in from New York. She's an orthopedic expert in little league pitching. Fascinating subject. I'll explain more coming up next on the Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. It's good to be king, right, King James? Absolutely. And good to be courtly friends on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Yeah. I love it. Be treated like medical royalty with Clappervision. Yeah. Feast like a monarch on Doc's delectable finds. There we go. And that far rockaway jester humor. <laughs> Search Weekend Warrior and click on Doc's regal picture. Cool. Sound the trumpets. No cortisone, alchemy, or leeches here. Everything's good. Bow, curtsy, like or follow the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. That makes me happy. Cheers. Hey, it's Mace. You know, there is no better way to start your Saturday than with Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Google the Guggenheim. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Good times. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Last week, I didn't take a single call. Boy, do I feel bad. So I'm making up for it this week. Let's uh, interrupt what we were going to do and take a call to keep the clinic open, do some clap revision. Let's talk to Dave. Dave, you're on with Dr. Clapper. How can I help? Hey, good morning, sir. How are you? Thank you for taking my call. Um, my pleasure, a- Dave. How young are you and what do you do for a living? I'm uh, 36 years old. I'm a uh, former police officer, and I'm currently in the security business. Nice. What did your father do for a living? He was a uh, truck driver for 20 years. Nice. And what you, there was no way you were going to be a truck driver, correct? No, no, not, absolutely not. Long hours away from home, long hours on the road. What was it about truck driving that did not appeal to you? I'm sorry, that didn't appeal to me? Yes. Just the fact that I remember when my brother and I were at a very young age, my dad would always be on the road. And uh, we even had times where he would come back from his uh, trip and literally a couple hours later, turn around and go back again. So we could, we, we didn't see him, you know, for days. And that was something that I didn't want my kids to, uh, to uh, witness. Yeah, but he, your dad worked hard to keep the family going, and God bless him for being that way. It's terrible, though, because you pay a high price for it. Good for you to figure out how to do something different. All I wanted to do was be a carpenter like my dad, but my mom said, nope, I'm a nurse. You should be a doctor. But it's really interesting, the, the impact, what you're, particularly for a son, what your dad does for a living. You either follow in that footstep or you run away from it. What'd you do to yourself, Dave? How can I help you? 
Well, uh, good question, sir. I have no idea what my uh, what I did to myself. Well, I I actually think uh, my prior job being a former police officer, I think, is what kind of hurt my knees. Um, mm-hmm. I seem to have problems with my knees, and it's it goes and comes. And uh, you know, I play I play soccer, and I have no mm-hmm. problem. I can walk with no problem. But whenever I'm sitting down and driving for let's say a length of time both of my knees i have sharp pain to a point where it feels mm-hmm. like my knees are kind of like locking mm-hmm. and uh, i would have to get out and stretch mm-hmm. um i did have an mri done mm-hmm. to my knees and they said they didn't see any problems mm-hmm. um i did go to a uh, physical therapist in burbank close to st mm-hmm. joseph's and uh, it seems like it just didn't help me and i still have those pains and i just don't know so if do you listen to the show? You know what Clapper Vision is? Um, I do listen to the show. Whenever I'm at work on Saturdays, I do listen. Okay. You know what Clapper Vision is, right? Um, not really. Okay. Clapper Vision is me trying to paint a picture in your head so you'll understand why you can have an MRI that says nothing the matter with you, and yet you have stabbing pain in both of your knees. Um, if Are you sitting down right now, Dave? I am. So with you sitting down, I want you to feel your kneecap. The kneecap, let's pretend it's a clock, okay? Okay. It's a circle. 12 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 9 o'clock. Where is the pain in your knee? It's right at 6 o'clock, just a little bit below the 6 o'clock. There you go. So that is the exact spot, Dave, where the patella tendon, that mushy structure below your kneecap, that attaches your kneecap to the shin bone, the tibia, that lets you straighten your knee. That is the entry point to inside the joint. That's where the patella tendon attaches to the kneecap itself. There's a great expression that I learned many years ago from my professor, Dr. Ranawat. The eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. So if they're doing an MRI and they're looking for your meniscus, yeah, your meniscus is fine, they're going to say, well, there's nothing wrong with your meniscus. Your MRI is negative. They're going to look at your ACL. Did you tear your ACL? You're not tearing your ACL so fast. You know it. Okay, there's nothing to matter with your ACL. And they add up all the things that they think they can see on the MRI, and then they tell you there's nothing to matter with you. And you're saying, yes, there is, because if I sit for too long, I get a sharp pain when I go to stand up in both of my knees. And that's the key. In your history, Dave, both of your knees. Nobody's tearing both meniscus at the same time. Nobody's tearing both ACLs at the same time. Yes, there can be an outlier, but that ain't you. Not with your history of no significant trauma. So here is the diagnosis that's the matter with your knee that doesn't show up on the MRI. Velcro. You know what Velcro is, right? Yes. Two bands. One's a female side, one's the male side, and they interlock with each other. Well, there's a difference between Velcro, two surfaces that male-female can kind of connect and and, uh, be glued together, if you will, stuck together. That's the whole purpose of Velcro. But if I'm here to tell you that the cartilage on the back of your knee is smoother than two ice cubes rubbing together, then if the surface of the cartilage 
which is not something we can see very well with the MRI, has the beginnings of scratches on it, almost like the female side of the Velcro, then when you sit in that car, that truck, wherever you're at, for too long of a period of time, instead of two ice cubes rubbing together that will not interlock, if the surface is at all scratchy, you'll start to adhere the two surfaces together like two pieces of Velcro. So when you go to stand up, the rip microscopically that's occurring is so painful. That is what's going on in your knee. Surgery, yeah, if it's been long enough, you go in, you clean up some of the, the inflammation, but it's actually the last thing that I'm thinking about for you. The greatest thing you can do, Dave, is adopt in your life three days a week for the next one or two months an exercise program in a swimming pool. Where do you live, Dave? I live in Sherman Oaks. I need you to schlep. That's a medical term. That means getting in your car and driving, Yiddish, to Culver City. The woman I wrote the book with, Heal Your Knees, which is all about how to exercise in a pool. You'll see Olympic athletes and you'll see older people. You need to get in the water. Heal Your Knees is the book. You're going to go meet Linda Yui. The place is called Complete PT. And don't let anybody inject you with cortisone or any needles. You do that, Dave. You'll get better. And thanks so much for checking in. Uh, we'll be in touch. If this doesn't work, I need to see you. Warriors, I'm leaving you with Volari, which means I'm singing and I'm flying. And I'll see you next week on the radio. Get smart. Just what are you getting at? Check out the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Like this. Medical advice from Cedar Sinai, head of orthopedic surgery. Are you kidding? With a far rockaway attitude and a little drizzle of mozzarella. Well, it's important to me. Search Weekend Warrior in the space bar. Like this. And click on Doc's picture. I see. Like, follow, and enjoy the Weekend Warrior Facebook page.